Well, hello, everybody. Uh, before we dive into the message, I would just like to invite the ushers to come forward and receive our tithes and offerings. And as they're doing that, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that we are starting a new series today <clears throat> called Return to Eden. Return to Eden. And this is a series that's a type of series that at Grace we call BYOB, which just stands for Bring Your Own Bible. And this is a kind of series where not only do we talk about, you know, what the Bible has to say about certain issues and topics, but we really want to equip you to be able to understand and to be able to study Scripture on your own. So kind of it has two purposes, and the second purpose is really to be able to make this book a little bit more understandable for you so that you feel equipped to be able to look at it yourself and not just have to rely on us to tell you what it says, but to actually give you the confidence to dive in for yourself. Over the last few years, as a part of this sort of BYOB type of series, we've been walking through uh, a narrative, a storyline of the people of God. And we began uh, back in 2017, we talked all about Genesis, the beginning of Genesis and the creation story and the flood and all of that. And then we began looking through the patriarchs and the story of how God chose the Israelites and um, began to call them and save them from uh, slavery in Egypt. And then he took them across the Red Sea. And then last Last fall, if you remember, if you were here, we looked at the part of the story where the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness and God was providing from them and they were doubting him and he was coming through for them and, and all of that. And that story ended with them right at the foothills of Mount Sinai. That's where we left them in the story. Mount Sinai is the place where God gave the Israelites the law or what we sometimes call the law of Moses. And that, the law, is what this whole series is all about. Now, I know that's probably confusing because all of the imagery and everything that we've been looking at have all been related to Eden, but I promise that's all going to make sense here today, this morning, as we get into this a little bit. So we're going to talk about the law. Now, I'm going to be super honest with you. The law is weird. It's weird, and it's uncomfortable, and it's just, it's an odd odd and weird part of our Bibles. I mean, it is, it is the kind of place that people go when they want to prove to you that the Bible is, is old-fashioned or, or weird or backwards or something like that. They go to the Old Testament law and they want to pull out quotes because it's just very, very, very different from our experience of the world. I mean, you open up the law and you're going to find multiple regulations about bodily emissions. You're going to have, you're going to have like all sorts of regulations about donkey thieves and like slaves and wizards. I mean, it is, I'm not making that up. It's all very, very weird and it's uncomfortable. And if you're like me, for a long portion of my Christian walk, I just avoided reading the law entirely because it was just too weird for me. And frankly, I was kind of embarrassed by it. Okay. Maybe you feel like, feel like that. So, okay, why in the world, if that's the case, why would we dedicate an entire sermon series to this very odd, uncomfortable part of our Bibles? Well, the reason, and now that I, now I understand this, is because contrary to popular opinion, the law is not irrelevant to our lives, as so many believe. Quite the contrary. In fact, the law of Moses is a foundational aspect to understanding the entire story of the Bible, including the person and the work of Jesus who we follow. I now believe that if, if you really want to understand Jesus, you have to understand the law. 
And I think that if we can do that, if we can begin to to wrap our minds around what the law was and how it fits into this bigger story, uh, we're going to better grasp God's heart for this world. And I think it's going to give us a glimpse for how we can live our lives better and actually begin to to experience more life, more peace, more goodness in our day-to-day experiences. So that's what we're going to do for this series. Now let me kind of walk you through how the series is going to work. Today, it's going to be a little bit of an odd sermon. We're not going to look so deeply at one specific passage because I want to take a really broad look at many passages and try to answer the question of what is the law? Try to set it up in in context of the bigger story. Next week, we will dive a little bit more deeply because we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. By the way, Ten Commandments, that's that's where it comes from in the law. The weeks after that, for four weeks, we are going to look at four themes or ideas which are sort of underneath every single rule and regulation that you see in the law. Themes like justice, holiness, uh, Sabbath, and sacrifice. Those four themes, they are underneath every single one. And I'm just going to go ahead and give away the ending right now, okay? What you're going to see in every one of these messages is that the Israelites, the people of, of Israel, were being given a, an invitation, an invitation to experience a kind of life that was completely other than what they were experiencing in the world. They were being invited to to experience a lifestyle of peace and and joy and justice and love and and harmony. And ultimately, again, spoiler alert, we're going to get to the point where we realize that all of those invitations that the Israelites were being given are also being given to us. We are being invited to experience that same kind of life. A way of living which will actually bring us in to the very presence of God. Now, this is a pretty deep series. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot to chew on. Believe me, today I've given, I'm going to give you some stuff that you're going to have to go to your room and think about because this is some, some pretty intense, uh, wild ideas. And, uh, and so, yeah, because of that we realize that just having sermons on the weekend is probably not going to be enough. We really want to give you an opportunity to engage with these concepts and ideas throughout the weeks of this series. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring back something I did a couple years ago. Every week during this series, I am going to be hopping on Grace's Facebook page and doing a live stream on, uh, on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. This is going to be a chance to interact with uh, one another and to answer some questions. If you have questions, uh, you know, you can, you can submit them and I'll do my best to answer those that I can uh, during the live stream. So if you want to ask a question, gracechurch.us slash BYOB has a little form where you can put your question and it'll get sent straight to me. I've already received some and I got to tell you, some doozies in there, some good ones. So I'm really looking forward to Wednesday, 7 p.m. when we do a live stream on Grace's Facebook page. So yeah, so let's dive into this series and, uh, and get talking about the law. Like I said, today I want to take a really big picture look at how the law fits in with the bigger story. And we have to start by asking a pretty basic question. What even is it? What, what is the law? And I know that that may seem self-explanatory to you because you think, well, the law, it's just the law, right? We have laws. But I got to tell you, it's a little different than the way that our modern laws work. All of our understanding of, of laws and the legal system, they're all based on uh, modern Western ideas. We're all coming out of the Enlightenment with a way of, of organizing our society, right? We have a constitution, we have a, a court system and all of that. And what happens is we so easily take our ideas of how law works and we just read it right back into the Old Testament law. The thing is... 
that this Old Testament law was written not in a modern Western culture, but in an ancient Eastern culture. And their concepts for how society works and how laws work, they're very different than our own. So, for example, we assume there are 613 individual regulations in the law of Moses, right? Individual commands or things to do or don't do. And we just assume, okay, that's just like the way that our laws work. Do this, don't do this. And, uh, and so it's just a one-to-one correlation, but that's actually not true. In fact, what we call the law in, in the Old Testament, the Israelites had a word for it in Hebrew, and it's Torah. Torah, which literally means teachings, okay? Torah means teachings, but we just translate the word as law. But if you really want to be literal, you've got to say the teachings uh, of Moses, the law of Moses. Now, these teachings, they go far beyond those 613 rules. They include them, but they go beyond them. In, in fact, the, to- the Torah, the word Torah, in, in Israel's mind, it doesn't actually just describe that law code at all. It describes the entire first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. To someone in Israel, all of that was the Torah. All of that was the law, the, the teachings, right? So when you think of it that way, then it starts to make a little bit more sense. When you see passages like in Psalm 1, this always used to confuse me, where it says, they delight in the law, the Torah of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. You see, this is not just describing meditating on some regulations about oxen goring people to death, right? This is about meditating on something bigger than that, on a story, a story which goes far deeper than most of us modern thinkers ever realize. The Torah, the law, it's a story that starts with God's creation of the world, It's a story of how and why humanity broke that very good world that God had created. And it's a story of God calling out a unique people to join him in healing that broken world. We see in the story that that God makes a covenant with Israel. And the law, the regulations that we think of as the law, those are a part of that covenant relationship. Kind of like a marriage, okay? When you get married with somebody, nobody thinks that a marriage is just, all it is is just two people signing on the dotted line on their wedding day and, you know, a couple of rules like, you know, don't, don't uh, commit adultery and be faithful. Like, that's not marriage. It's not rules. Marriage, it's, it's a relationship, right? It's, it's love. It's forgiveness. It's, it's compromise. All of that is what makes a marriage uh, work. And, and the same thing is true for Israel. I mean, I got to experience this. Uh, Olivia and I, we, my wife Olivia and I, uh, we're hanging a, we're doing a little DIY bathroom remodel. And so I got to see the, the limits of, of marriage when I was, you know, we were trying to hang a, a light fixture and, you know, she's holding it. Her arms are getting tired and I'm up on this little thing trying to get something screwed in. And I'm like, no, to the right. You know, it's chaos and we're both like exhausted. Turns out we're still in love and you know what? It got hung up and I, after rewiring it a couple of times, we got the lights to work. So marriage, covenant, it's all good. So um, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I don't deserve any of that. Um, But the point is, the point is my marriage to Olivia it's not just some rules that we, it's not the, pace, the piece of paper that we signed on our wedding day, right? The same thing is true for Israel. The covenant between God and Israel, it's a relationship, not just a list of rules. Yes, there are laws, but it's, it's bigger than that. So, for example, uh, in the Torah, we read about the regulation that the Israelites are not allowed to make idols for themselves, okay? They're not allowed to worship idols. 
But just as important to the Torah, to the, to the whole overarching story, is what happens right after they receive that regulation. What do they do? They make idols for themselves. You guessed it. So what you see in the story is God gives them a, a part of that covenant relationship, and then they immediately break it. And then you're asking, what happens next? Well, it turns out they face the consequences, but then God forgives them and moves on and continues in relationship with them. So what you start to see is that this is a pattern that repeats and again and again throughout the Torah where the Israelites receive a law, break the law, and then God remains faithful to them. And what it does is it creates a story which future generations could then wrestle with and actually look at. Rather than, you know, a future generation looking at that and just saying, okay, well, I'm not supposed to have idols. They can actually see what happens if they have idols. They can wrestle with it and ask, am I going to make the same mistakes that my ancestors made, right? So this is an ongoing story. Now, when you understand the Torah in this way, when you, when you start to realize that this is, this is not meant to just be some sort of comprehensive legal code, and you start to realize that it's a story, it changes how it, what it means and the role that it plays in the bigger story of the Bible. You start to see it as a story that continues from, from Genesis all the way through the rest of the Bible. And it's a story that actually continues into your life and my life today. That same story has not ended. It's continuing today. So here's what I want to do for, for the rest of our time today. I want to talk about that story. I want to see if we can wrap our minds around what is the story that the Torah is a part of, the story that, that, that you and I are a part of, and see if we can make sense of all of that. And as surprising as this might seem, this story, yes, the story about the law, it begins in the Garden of Eden. Now it's all connected. You'll see, okay, uh, why, why we're talking about the Garden of Eden. So let's start there, and let me kind of recap a little bit of the story for you. In the beginning, that's how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created everything. He created the heavens and the earth and, and life itself, and it was good. It was very good. But then in the story, God creates something unique. He makes humans, and it says that he makes them in his image, he puts them on the earth to, to do two things, to serve and to protect creation in his name, to be the kings and the queens of the world, in other words. Now, these first humans are named Adam and Eve, and in the story, they're, they're like children. They're not actually children, but they're, they're innocent like children. They have no shame. They, they're naked, and they, they don't even realize it, and so they're living in this, this garden that God creates for them. It, this garden he creates in a place called Eden. And this whole place is a place of abundance and life in the story. Every plant, every creature, every blade of grass, everything is in harmony with one another. There's no death. There's no violence. It's beautiful. And in this place, in this garden, God walks with Adam and Eve and talks with them. And, and, and they're able to have a face-to-face -face relationship with the Creator. Now, one little detail in the story which is going to blow your mind, some of you, is the fact that this garden is actually at the top of a mountain. I know, I know. I didn't realize this either until, you know, recently. But in the Israelites' mind, the place where earth and heaven intersected was the top of a mountain. This is a place where God could intersect and, and dwell with humanity. And Eden is like that. You could say that Eden is heaven on earth. 
It's also referenced in Scripture as the mountain of the Lord. Now, I know Genesis does not spell it out like that explicitly. It doesn't say, and by the way, this was on a mountain. But what it does say is that a river flows out of Eden. Where do rivers come from? High places. And everywhere else in Scripture where you see this idea, this this, uh, image of humans and God meeting one another in this shared divine earthly place, it's always on a mountain. And it's very reasonable to, to assume that that mentality was actually meant to be understood when we're reading the story of Eden. So, it's a mountain. By the way, gracechurch.us slash BYOB if you have questions. You can send them to me. I know this is kind of weird. It's going to take some reframing of our mentality. So let's continue with the story. God tells Adam and Eve that they are free to eat from any of the trees in this beautiful mountain garden. And the one at the center of them is is really special. At the center of the garden is a tree called the tree of life. Adam and Eve can eat their fill of of this nourishing, life-giving fruit. This is a gift of abundance from God. But, but, God tells them there's one tree that they cannot eat from. One tree they cannot eat from at all. And this, if they eat from this tree, God tells them, the result is going to be death. That's the result of this tree. And it's called the tree of the knowledge of Tov and Ra. Now, Tov and Ra, I, put those in, I kept those in Hebrew. These are Hebrew words which we normally translate as good and evil. And Ra can mean evil, but, but I prefer to call it uh, good and bad bad because these words tov and ra are not necessarily about moral goodness and badness. They might just be about the inherent quality of a thing. There's a a passage elsewhere in scripture that talks about a basket of tov figs and a basket of ra figs. Well, the figs in the ra basket, they're not evil. They're just bad. They're just rotten. They're no good, right? So this is a a quality of things that that is different than just sort of the morality, even though morality is, is included within it. So I prefer, I actually love the way that um, the the folks at the Bible Project, they refer to this as the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And I actually think that makes a lot of sense with the way that the story works. So, okay, tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Why can't the humans eat of this tree? Well, I'll tell you, throughout the story so far, God has been the one deciding what is good and what is bad. He, he creates light, and he calls it good. He creates trees and fish and birds, and he calls all of creation very good. He also says that it's not good, it's bad for man to be alone, and so he creates woman, right? So when Adam and Eve, they eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and bad, it's essentially them saying, look, yeah, God, look, I know that you've said what's good and bad, but I think we're going to decide that for ourselves, We're going to make up our own mind about what is good, what is bad. We're going to define reality our way. So why are they going to die if they eat from it? Well, like I said, they're not ready to make these kinds of decisions about reality. They're like children. They're innocent. It's like a a kid saying, yeah, mom and dad, look, I know you said that I shouldn't go out into the road, but it sure looks like a really fun place to play. That's not the kind of a decision that a kid should be able to make. They don't understand the consequences of that. And yet, Adam and Eve are willfully saying, yes, I'm going to do the thing that you said I shouldn't do. Even though God has given them the the gift of abundant life, they have the tree of life, they can eat from it. The temptation to define good and bad for themselves is overwhelming. In Genesis 3, it says that Eve, quote, saw that the tree was good for food. 
She decided that the tree was good, right? She, she labeled it as good. And so she and Adam then eat. Humanity eats from the fruit of that second tree. And as a result, they are exiled from the Garden of Eden. And in that moment, just like that, just like that, their story becomes the story of the plight of humanity, right? There, there, theirs is the story of the human condition. Because that choice that they made to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, it's the same choice that every one of us makes. We all make that choice. Do I trust God enough to eat from the tree of life or do I want to decide what's good for me? Do I want to decide what's bad? Because it is just so easy. We all know this. It is so easy for us to assume that God does not really have our best interests in mind. Just like Adam and Eve, we all eat from that second tree again and again and again and again. We make ourselves gods. We define reality and the consequences of that choice, they echo into our world. Just like Adam and Eve and, and the, the relationships that follow, these, these relationships with one another, with, with creation itself, they all start to break down. Hatred and violence and selfishness and abuse all of this flows out of that choice. Our addiction to self is overwhelming and it has consequences. We cannot steam to stop eating from that tree. And just like Adam and Eve, when we make that choice, we exile ourselves away from God's presence, his life-giving presence. We leave the mountain garden and we find ourselves in the wilderness. And as God promised, the result of that choice is death. That's what we experience. We do experience physical death, but not just that. We also experience our, our abandoning of the life-giving existence that we were all intended to have. The death of a broken world. That's what we experience. We determine what is good and bad for us. You do you, I'll do me. And look where it leads us. In Genesis 3, God places something called cherubim. Cherubim are these, these very powerful angelic beings, and he places them at the, at the east side of Eden, at the entrance, the gate into Eden, so that the humans are no longer able to access the tree of life. He has to protect the tree of life from these humans who have eaten from the other tree. So he puts cherubim there, and that's really uh, kind of a, a sealing the deal, so to speak, of the decision that they made. And that story, that image of the cherubim guarding the way back to the tree of life, that is the story which kicks off the whole Torah, the whole law. Now this story of Eden, it raises a question, doesn't it? It's a question that the rest of the Torah is trying to answer. And the question is this, is it possible to get back? Is there any way for us to return to Eden, to return to that mountain garden? Can we, in any way, can we begin to dwell ever again in the presence of God? Well, the answer that the Torah gives is yes. Yes. Because in his relentless love of humanity, God immediately begins the process of reconciling humans to himself. He gives them a path back to Eden, so to speak. He starts by choosing a people, the Israelites. He, he rescues them, like I said, from the wilderness and the chaos of slavery, and he brings them to a new mountain, 
Mount Sinai. And at the top of that new mountain, he meets with a new Adam, someone that in the story is very many times uh, connected to Adam named Moses. He meets with Moses and he gives him Torah or teachings. He teaches Israel and Moses how to be a people who are set apart from the, the rest of the world, how to experience life again. Now, a lot of the Torah, a lot of this this law specifically revolves around something called the tabernacle. And there are tons and tons of rules and regulations about exactly how to construct the tabernacle, which was essentially like a a mobile tent that they could, you know, set up and take down in the wilderness where God and his people could meet. The tabernacle was mobile, but eventually later, I've got a a couple photos I just randomly found online. On the left there, that's an image of someone made of the tabernacle. And on the right, that's a more permanent structure that's called the temple, which became sort of the the permanent home of what was then the tabernacle. Now, of course, a little fun detail. Of course, guess where the temple was built? On the top of another mountain called Mount Zion. And at the top of that mountain in Jerusalem is where God and his people could meet. But what I find so fascinating in this whole storyline is the fact that both the tabernacle and the temple were meant from the very beginning to represent Eden. For example, they both uh, had an eastward-facing entrance, just like the Garden of Eden. They were decorated with leaves and grapevines and nature, just like the garden. And inside both of them was something called a menorah. A menorah, which is a seven-branched candelabra, which represented the tree of life. That's what the menorah is. It's the tree of life. I love this little detail. Adam, in Genesis, is told uh, to, quote, tend and watch over creation— And the Levite priests who were in charge of the tabernacle, they were told to, quote, tend and watch over the tabernacle. There's all these these parallels. And of course, the biggest one of all is the fact that just like in the Garden of Eden, at the center of this tabernacle was the very presence of God. The high priest could represent the people and encounter the presence of God yet again. Oh, and there's one little other little detail I find so interesting. In that um, tabernacle, there was a curtain a big heavy curtain that protected uh, the, 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 the holiest place in the middle of the tabernacle. And guess what they embroidered onto that curtain? Cherubim. They put cherubim on that curtain. It represented the gate to the Garden of Eden. These cherubim protected uh, this, the holiest place from the corruption of the world around them. So I find that so interesting. You get the, you get the parallels here. The tabernacle And especially the the holiest place in that tabernacle represented Eden. And now the people of God could take Eden with them as they wandered through the wilderness. At this point, uh, the the most important question becomes with this whole mountain garden that's now with them. The question becomes, as Psalm 24 asks, who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who's going to be able to encounter God, in other words? Is anyone going to be able to re-enter Eden? And the answer that the Torah gives to that question is this. Here's who who can climb the mountain of the Lord. Those who choose not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, who choose not to try to define reality for themselves, but who eat from the tree of life who listen to God's teachings and and submit themselves to his wisdom, to what he says is good and bad, to listen to what God had said and to actually live in in response to that. This right here, I want to make a, a clear point about the law that so many of us misunderstand. The point of the law was not for God to just give Israel a bunch of arbitrary rules so that he could zap anybody who disobeys him. 
That's not what the law is at all. No, quite the contrary. The law was a way for for God to describe what life in Israel could actually look like if they trusted in his wisdom, if they took from the tree of life. A society like Eden, a society of justice for the poor and the marginalized. Equality between people, a community which is set apart from the corruption of the the evil world, a people who willingly sacrifice their own selfish desires for something greater than themselves, and a society that's not driven by the relentless slave master of work and profit, but who can rest in the promises and the provisions of God. That's the kind of society that the law paints the picture of. That's the society that God is inviting the Israelites to join him in. Now, at the end of his life, in, uh, you can read this in Deuteronomy 30. Feel free to turn there if you want. It's just a short little passage. But Moses, uh, at the end of his life, this is actually at the end of the Torah as well, he basically recaps the entire story of the Torah. He walks the people through all of what they've experienced, reminds them of all the laws, And then he says this, and I find this this so fascinating. He says, today, I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call upon heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. This is... This is the key to your life. I love that. Oh, that you would choose life. It's a choice. Of course, as we know, if you, if you continue reading in the story, you realize that the Israelites really struggled to make that choice. They struggled to choose life. They didn't choose it. They, they, they didn't obey the Torah. Even though they had the stories after stories of their ancestors and and, and God's continued forgiveness and invitation to join him, they continued to define good and bad for themselves. It was just too great. That temptation was just too great. As, As judges said, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Again and again in Israel, they were they were unjust, they were corrupt, they were selfish, they were driven by greed. And just like Adam and Eve, the Israelites exiled themselves right out of God's presence. And they missed out on the life that he was offering them. But thank God that is not the end of the story. Because in the midst of their unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. I've talked about his relentless faithfulness. Well, it didn't stop then either. He continued to be faithful, so much so that he ultimately sent his own son, Jesus, to the people of Israel to show them another way. Jesus, who, by the way, he took the commands of the Torah to the extreme. Jesus taught, uh, the law says what? Don't murder? Well, I say don't even hate somebody. The law says not to commit adultery? Fine. I say don't even lust. The law says to love your neighbor. That's great. But I tell you that you should love your enemies too. This right here, one of the biggest misconceptions that we have about the Bible is that God was doing a whole bunch of stuff in the Old Testament, but then we took this huge right turn in the the New Testament and all of a sudden we throw out all the old stuff. That's not what was going on at all. 
No, Jesus understood that behind the 613 regulations that we have in the Torah, which, yes, they were, they were written for a people at a specific time in a specific historical framework, but Jesus understood that behind those, those regulations was a story, was a story and ideas which, which held the key to true, abundant life. He said it himself. He said, don't misunderstand why I've come. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law or, or of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And what was that purpose? The purpose was to open back up the gate of Eden and to show humanity how to climb the mountain of the Lord, how to, how to enter again into the presence, the garden of God's presence, and to eat once again from the tree of life. When Jesus died on that cross, he paid the penalty for us eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. We didn't trust God. We decided to define reality for ourselves. But Jesus, who did trust God, paid the penalty for us. He experienced death in our place. But guess what happened when he did that? I, I love this. In Matthew 27, it says, At that moment, the moment that Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you remember what was on that curtain? Cherubim, just like the ones that were guarding the way back into Eden. The curtain was torn. The, the gate was open. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we now have the very presence of God accessible to us. The Holy Spirit brings Eden into our hearts. We are no longer doomed to repeat the mistakes of our spiritual ancestors, eating again and again and again from that, that tree of selfishness, that tree of self-determination. We don't have to eat that fruit anymore, and we don't have to live in shame. We can now eat from the tree of life. And we can start to live with one another the way that the law of Moses always intended. Justice, harmony, peace, provision, rest. Yes, the world is still broken. It is. The world is still broken. Our experience of Eden is still just a taste of what's to come. But God is in the business of healing this broken world. He's relentless in his faithfulness. And he is inviting us to join him in that mission. And thanks to Jesus, we now, in the midst of this, this healing of a broken world, we now can have confidence that after these bodies die, it's new creation. New creation where we can once again dwell face to face with God in that mountain garden. That is a story worth living for. And that, yeah, amen to that. And this is the story that we're going to be spending these next few weeks looking into. This is the story of the Torah, how the, the Torah, the law of Moses, is just the first chapter of a story that continues even today, that every one of us is still caught up in. The story of humanity learning to trust in a God who offers life to every single one of us. A God who offers life and joy and peace and rest and harmony to you. To you. You're worth it because God says you're worth it. And he wants you to taste from the tree of life, that gift of abundance that's for you.